Welcome to Ashley's. As he said, my name is Matt and I serve as one of the pastors in training here. And it's great to see you here at Charlotte Chapel today. Uh, let me pray before we jump into our topic this morning. Father God, how awesome you are in majesty and glory. You alone are the immortal and invisible God. Father, please help us as we come to look at your word. Father, help us to understand it, to love what it says, and to go away ready to apply it to our lives. And we pray all this in your son's Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how many things, how many words or items or technology do we use every single day in our life but never really understand? Things that we rely on not just to make our lives easier and simpler, but maybe even to make our lives possible, but we never really grasp how they work. Just take, for example, uh, the humble mobile phone. How does it work? How can my voice travel in the air to the other side of the world without a break so that my auntie can hear me like she was in the room next to me, even though she lives in North America? How does that work? I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. Or what about the internet? I mean, what is the internet? Where is the internet? I mean, when we're uploading things, where are we uploading them to? I don't know about you, but it blows my mind when I think of these things. So many things that we use every single day, but we never really know what is going on. Well, what about as Christians? How many things are true in the Bible? How many truths do we often rejoice about, do we sing about, but we've never really thought about them? We've never really understood them. And in Christian language, we often call these kind of sets of truths or beliefs as doctrines. And today, we're going to be thinking about the doctrine of the incarnation, something we often talk about, especially at Christmas, something that we sing carol after carol after carol about, but maybe something we've never really thought about the theology behind it. Immediately when we hear the word incarnation, some of us might know what it means. Maybe we have thought about it. Or some of us might have a simple idea that it's about Jesus, the eternal son, coming to earth. But where does the word incarnation even come from? Well, now for a bit of word history, for those of us who like that kind of thing. It comes from the Latin word carne, which means flesh. The incarnation literally means the act of enfleshment. It is when God becomes man, he takes on flesh. And this idea is from John 1.14, which is on the screen behind me, where John tells us the word, that is Jesus, becomes flesh. That's where we get the idea of the incarnation, the one who took on flesh. So three points we're going to look at today as we think about this topic. And we're going to think about the fact that the incarnation is prophesied, the incarnation is mysterious, and the incarnation is necessary. So firstly, the incarnation is prophesied. How often, as ordinary people, do we make plans? And when we make plans, how often do we not just need to make uh, plan A, one plan, but also plan B and C and D and E as well? We think something's going to be a really good idea. This will work first time, no problem. But then something comes up, and we have to change the plan last minute. How often does that happen to us time and time again? 
This happened to me recently. Just recently, my wife and I bought a poster for my wife's parents for Christmas. And when we bought it online, we could have just clicked the option to buy it with a frame, ready-made, all coming in one piece. But we said, no, we don't need that frame. We're going to do our own plan. Uh, we're going to buy our own frame. We're going to save some money. This was our plan A. Well, let me tell you, plan A failed miserably. Uh, we thought we were buying a frame from this shop we went to. We took it home, thought we'll take out the little sheet that's inside it, it's fine. It turned out that that sheet was actually a photo sealed in the frame that you couldn't get out without breaking the frame. Okay, plan B, we go to Ikea. Ikea has lots of frames, we'll buy an empty frame. We arrive at Ikea, no frame fits the poster. Okay, plan B is also now out the window. Plan C, let's just crack on, we'll buy the empty frame, We'll kind of adjust it and we'll make it fit. So that's what we went with. We took it home, we had to take it all apart, getting out the scissors and pencils, drawing around the poster, and eventually it fit in this IKEA empty frame. Eventually it works, as I said, but it was a bit of a disaster. And I tell this story because I think it's often how we think about God's plan of salvation for his people in the Old and New Testament. We think he maybe had one plan, the Garden of Eden, that was his plan all along. But then when that went south, he had to try something else. But that didn't work, so then we have the flood. But then that didn't work either, so now we're on plan Z, and plan Z was to send Jesus because everything else had failed. I think that's often how we're tempted to think, isn't it? God just kept messing up, and he had to think of a new plan. But that would be disastrous for us to think as Christians. A God who couldn't fulfill his own plan A should not be a God that we believe in. See, we need to see today that the incarnation is not plan Z, but plan A. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. It's on page 694 in the Red Bibles, and we're just going to look at verses 6 and 7. They're also on the screen behind me as well. And as you turn there, it's worth knowing a couple of things. Firstly, Isaiah is written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Isaiah was a prophet. He was speaking of a time yet to come. And he's speaking about a person who would come and he would bring salvation not just to Israel, the nation of Israel, but also to the whole world. Secondly, as you're turning there, it's worth knowing that in verse 7, we see a reference to David. Now, David was the greatest king in Israel's history, someone who was a man after God's own heart. And God promised to David in a different book of the Bible, to Samuel, that one day someone would sit on David's throne, not just for a lifetime, but for eternity. So with that background in mind, let me just read verses six and seven to us. It says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. His zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now I just noticed a couple of things with me about uh, Isaiah and what Isaiah speaks about. Just look down at verse 6, where we learn that this saviour is a child who's going to be born. Not only is he a child, he's a son. And both of these things are interesting because they imply humanity, don't they? A son, a child, that's a human. But then observe with me the titles this person is given at the end of verse 6. Just look at them. It says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince 
of peace. See, the titles he's given make it crystal clear that this is someone who is divine and not just human. That this child is no ordinary child, that he also has to be God. Look, he's even called mighty God, everlasting. But what else do we learn from this Isaiah prophecy? Just look down at verse 7 with me. If you look down, we can see that Isaiah is talking about a human descendant of David. Yet at the same time, he's talking about someone who can sit on David's throne forever, eternally. Something obviously not possible by an ordinary man. Just look at the life of King David. King David has died and he's buried. Whereas this person is going to sit on the throne eternally. Again, this almost explicitly indicates that this savior, this child to be born, is no ordinary child. He also has to be God as well as man. Now, there are many other places we could go in the Old Testament to think about a promised Savior. Someone promised to come and rescue God's people. But I think Isaiah is the really interesting passage because he makes it clear that this person is not only going to be a man, but it's going to be God. God is going to take flesh and come down to this earth. God is not going to send someone else to do his work. No, he's going to come down at himself, come into this messed up world himself, and make a way for all people who believe in him to be saved. See, unlike my photo frame disaster, God's plans always come to fruition. He planned to save his people, that's clear from Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament. It was something prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus. And now that's easy to say, isn't it? But how is it possible? How exactly does this prophesied incarnation happen? And that's where we need to go to the New Testament. And it brings us to our next point, The incarnation is mysterious. The incarnation is mysterious. Now you might be thinking when you hear that word that this is going to be a bit of a cop-out answer. It's one of those, well, we can't really know, so let's just leave it and hope for the best. But that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm trying to say is that there has to be a recognition that when we're thinking about God, we are small and mortal beings And God is the God of the whole universe, infinitely above our scrutiny. The incarnation is not like trying to understand a mobile phone, and it's not like trying to understand what the internet is. This is the God of all creation. This is a Scottish two-year-old trying to understand astrophysics in Russian. Okay, this is mind-blowing stuff. Just listen to what Deuteronomy 29.29 says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Moses wrote, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. See, there's secret things that belong to God and there's things that God has revealed for us to believe about him. Or Isaiah 55, where God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we see here, we have to humble ourselves when approaching anything to do with God, especially when it comes to things that can easily confuse us. And we need to be careful not to oversimplify things. That's always a temptation, isn't it? Let's use a little analogy, and that'll make it really simple to understand. For example, when people speak of the Trinity, the fact that God is three persons, people often use the idea of water, ice, and water vapor, or compare it to an egg with an eggshell and an egg white and an egg yolk. But these are wrong because they don't do justice to the complexity and the otherness and the infiniteness of God himself. Analogies can be useful, I'm not trying to condemn them, but we must tread very lightly. 
All of that to say, when it comes to incarnation, I think there are two truths that we must hold on to and believe as Christians, two truths that we all confessed in the creed, but two truths that do have an air of mystery. So we're just going to spend a little bit of time exploring those two truths. The first truth is that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. Turn with me to John chapter 1 where we were earlier, page 1063 if you've lost your place in the red Bibles. And we're just going to see a few things about what John calls uh, the Word. So John chapter 1, just look at those verses with me. Notice that the Word is both eternally with God and is in fact God himself. Look at that in verse 1. Then as we scan down the passage, go to verse 7, and we see that this Word is a person, a person that we're meant to believe in, we're meant to trust in. And that person is someone who John the Baptist witnessed to. Then we just scan down again and jump down to verse 14. This is the kind of crunch verse of John chapter 1. Here John tells us that this word, who was God and with God, the one who was eternally God, took on flesh. And not only did he take on flesh, he took on flesh and dwelt among us, among ordinary people, people like you and me. And the word here that's used for dwelling in the original is the same word used in the Old Testament to describe the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt before building the temple. So if we just look down at verse 14, we could read that verse by saying, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now we might be thinking, why is that important? The tabernacle was significant because it was all about God's presence. It's this idea of God pitching his tent among people about him himself coming down, his presence on the earth, being with his people. Look down with me also and see that in verse 14, this word is described as the son, the word that John is on about. The exact same language used in Isaiah, the promised son is the word who is God. Who is this son, this eternal word, this God made flesh? Well, who do we know that John the Baptist testified about? Verse 29 tells us, John testified about Jesus. It's clear from John 1 that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the eternal Son of God become incarnate. Truly human, yet truly God. And the fancy description for Jesus being both God and man is something we call the hypostatic union. A bit of a fancy term. It just means the uniting of his divinity and his humanity. But when we're thinking about this, we might rightly ask, how is this possible? How can a man have two natures? And this is where we have to declare that there is a mystery to it. There's a lot more we could say. There's many more pastures we could go to. There's a lot of books being written on this topic. But the mysterious doesn't make something less true or less valid, but a mere acknowledgement that we can't possibly understand all the complexities of how Jesus is truly God and truly man. But can I urge us that it is something that we need to believe in? The pages of Scripture clearly teach it. It's something that God wanted his people to understand. Jesus was truly God and truly man. The second truth that also holds some mystery is the concept of Jesus being born of a virgin. And that's what we're going to look at now. So flick with me again to Luke chapter 1, page 1025 in the Red Bibles. So there's lots of flicking around today, but hopefully that's kind of giving you... um, some encouragement that the incarnation, the idea of the incarnation is not something based off one or two verses that we've just plucked out, but actually it's something scattered throughout the Bible. 
It's also good to remember that both Luke and John are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, taken firsthand from witnesses. And we learn from the start of Luke's gospel that he's written this account because he's investigating the life of Jesus. It's something he's done carefully, and therefore we can trust what he is saying. So look down at Luke 1, and just scan with me verses 26 to 38. 26 to 38 of Luke 1, and notice there's a repeated word. It's on the screen behind me as well. Verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married. The virgin's name was Mary. Then verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Luke repeats the word three times in seven verses to make the point clear. Mary has not been with a man. She is a virgin but she's going to have a baby. How is this possible? Go down to verse 35 of Luke chapter 1. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. You see, the Holy Spirit enables the conception of this baby. The power of God accomplishes what needs to happen. Where do we, uh, what should this remind us of? Well, remember back to Isaiah 9, because that should be popping into our heads once again. Isaiah says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, will accomplish salvation, will accomplish the incarnation, the sending of Jesus, the one who is truly God and truly man. But we might ask the question, why is it important that Jesus is born of a virgin? Why can he not just be born of a man and a woman? Well, because if this happens, then Jesus is only man. And if he is only man, then he inherits the sinful nature of our forefather Adam, something we looked at in Romans, if we remember. Jesus would have been born a sinner already under the judgment of a holy God. But by the intervention of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, Jesus is born sinless. Now, this is not just because sin comes from uh, men, So without a man, he would be sinless. That's not what we're saying. It's by the power of the Spirit that stopped the sinful nature of Adam. And this is something that we find out throughout the whole of the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.22 says this, Jesus is the one who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15, Jesus is the one who was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. Or 1 John 3, 5, in him, that is Jesus, there is no sin. See, Jesus Christ is perfect. Jesus Christ is sinless. But again, we might ask, like that slightly annoying child in the Sunday school, why? Why? Why is this important? Why does it matter we believe that Jesus was sinless? Why does it matter that we believe that Jesus came to earth, took on flesh, well, because the Bible paints a clear picture that we are sinful people who've rejected God. You see, we like to take the stuff that God gives us in this world, but we've rejected the giver. And God is angry with us. This is the, the picture the Bible paints that we need salvation from the judgment of a holy God. And this salvation is only possible if the two truths we just thought about are true. It's only possible if Jesus is both God and man, and that he's born of a virgin and therefore is sinless. The incarnation, the prophesied and mysterious incarnation is necessary. Necessary for salvation, necessary for everything we believe as Christians. So our final point then is the incarnation is necessary. 
Hebrews 2, 16 and 17 say this. They're going to be on the screen behind me. Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels he, that is Jesus again, helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Just observe the language of Hebrews 2. It says Jesus has to become fully human. That is the only way he can make atonement for the sins of the people. If Jesus is not fully human, he cannot stand in our place on the cross facing the judgment of God. If Jesus is to take our place, he is to be our substitute, then he has to be like the ones who are guilty. You see, Jesus' role depends on his humanity and on his divinity, but it also depends, as we saw earlier, on his sinlessness. Talking about Jesus, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus takes on himself all our guilt, all our unrighteousness, Everything that stops us being able to have a relationship with God, Jesus takes on himself. And he can do this because he had no guilt. He had no sin of his own. And secondly, because he's God, he's able to absorb all the sin of a sinful human race. You see, the one who was perfect becomes imperfect. The unblemished one becomes blemished. The sinless becomes completely sinful. So that we, sinful people, might become the righteousness of God, right in the eyes of God. I don't know about you, but this also blows my mind. Do we get how amazing this is, how phenomenal the message that lies at the heart of Christmas truly is? The perfect, eternal word, Jesus, sees our sin, and he doesn't condemn us from on high. No, he comes into the world to seek and save sinners. He becomes incarnate, he takes on human flesh, He comes to this earth and lives among us. Jesus, born into poverty, labored as a carpenter, rejected by his own people, rejected by his own family, nailed to a cross. Jesus, who left us an example of humility, not only in his life, but in his death, Philippians 2 tells us. And even death on a cross, the ultimate humiliation. When we think of the manger this Christmas, don't just think baby Jesus, cuteness, nativity. Think the incarnate Son of God come to die in the place of sinful people like you and like me. However, there is other ways that this truth should impact us. How can we apply this great truth that we thought about to ourselves? Well, maybe Christmas for you isn't all fun and games. Maybe it reminds you of lost loved ones, those no longer sat around the table enjoying the presents and food they used to. But I think the incarnation gives us something to find true comfort in during those difficult reminders. To know that Jesus became flesh and felt the pain of humanity. Jesus who lost real friends and wept at their gravesides. We have a sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to live in a fallen world. This Christmas, when we're struggling, we can turn to him for comfort and joy. Or maybe Christmas for you is really stressful 
uh, buying presents for that awkward family member? Will your uncle so-and-so drink too much again or say the wrong thing? How can we ever cater for all 15 of the in-laws? Well, maybe the incarnation for you lifts your eyes off the stresses of Christmas. The incarnation should reorientate our priorities and help us to rejoice in and share the real glorious news of Christmas. Pondering this wonderful truth of God who came down to earth puts other worries aside and puts them into perspective. And I don't say this to minimize real stresses that happen over Christmas, but I want to encourage us that the incarnation helps us see what really matters, the God who came to save his people. On the other hand, maybe you're here and Christmas for you is nothing more than fun and games and tradition and family. And they're all good things. But surely you can see that if this story of the incarnation is true, then there is something so much more to Christmas than that. Can I urge you to think more about what it would mean if God really did come to earth? If Jesus really did take on flesh and die in your place, as the Bible tells us, would that not change things? Can I urge you to speak to the person who brought you here this morning? Talk to me or Ashley after the service, or maybe come tonight and find out more about this Jesus who died for you. Well, whatever our circumstances, I think as Christians, we have good news of great joy for all people this Christmas. God came down to earth. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, a wonderful, prophesied, mysterious event necessary for the salvation of all people. We're going to face lots of temptations, aren't we, over this Christmas period to be distracted by many things. But to change a line from Glenn Scrivener, don't think of God as a far away stranger, but this Christmas look down to the God in the manger. Amen. Let me pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God who loved the world so much you sent your one and only Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Father, help us see through the commercial Christmas this year and help us remember to rejoice in the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, in whose name we pray. Amen.